chapter 2, Colossians chapter 2, verse 9. Do I sound all right out there? Sound good, Brother Heath? Okay. If I sound good, that means it sounds right and doing a great job. It takes a lot. Colossians chapter 2, verse 9. If you're there, say praise the Lord. For in him dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. Father, we thank you for your word today. We give you all praise and glory and honor. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. We continue our theological studies and teachings. Today brings us to the study of God particularly the Godhead. Say with me, the Godhead. All right, we got a lot to learn this morning. Colossians 2, 9, For in him dwelleth all the fullness, the pleroma of the Godhead. Say Godhead bodily. What does Godhead mean? Well, can we get in a theological definition? Now, let me just say this in the beginning. I'm going to read some technical information to you, definitions about different areas of the Godhead. Don't go to sleep on me, please. I wouldn't read them if they weren't necessary. It's really important for you to understand the Godhead. Okay? Now, when we talk about the Godhead, first of all, let me give you a non-theological definition. Non-theological definition. Godhead, you can say it like this, it's the headquarters of God. Okay? It's where God is resident. All right, so we talked about in him, in who? Jesus Christ dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. That's telling you that the Godhead is in him. Okay? Now notice what the Bible says in Colossians 3, verse 9. For in him dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. So the Godhead is in Jesus Christ. The fullness of deity fullness of God, amen, is in Jesus Christ bodily. Now, there is a another view that teaches that Jesus is in the Godhead. Are you with me? And that doctrine is the doctrine known as the doctrine of the Trinity. Alright? So, if you'll listen real careful this morning, we're going to teach you some things that's very important for you to understand. Alright? When you talk about the Godhead, is the Godhead a trinity, which means there's three separate persons. One essence of God, but three separate persons in the one essence of God. Okay? Now, if you believe in the doctrine of the trinity, you will say that Jesus is in the Godhead. You have the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. All right? three separate persons in the doctrine of the Trinity. So Father, Son, Holy Ghost being three separate persons would teach that Jesus is in the Godhead of Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. But that's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible doesn't say that Jesus is in the Godhead. It says all the fullness of the Godhead is in Him. Okay? Praise the Lord. 
Now, when you talk about the Godhead, you are talking about his deity. Now, let's look at some other passages. Paul talks about or uses this term Godhead three times. Go to the book of Acts in the 17th chapter. Now, if you will pray for me, I need your prayer this morning to be able to convey the thoughts, okay? All right, Acts 17, verse 29. Colossians 2 and verse 9, and then in Romans 1, 19 through 20, the word Godhead is used by the Apostle Paul, okay? So he uses that term Godhead three times. When Paul uses the term Godhead, what is he talking about? He's talking about deity. Okay? Jesus being God. Okay, Acts 17, go there please. In verse 29. For as much then as we are the offspring of God, we ought not to think that the Godhead is like unto gold or silver or stone graven by art and man's device. So here we have the term Godhead used. Now, it's important for you to understand, the Greek word here is related to his divinity, the divinity of God. When you talk about divinity, you're talking about his attributes. With me? The attributes. Divinity is attributes. Now listen carefully. When you receive the baptism of the Holy Ghost, the Bible says in Peter that you are partakers of his divine nature. So when you receive the Spirit of God, you receive the Holy Ghost, does that make you God? Okay, is God dwelling in you? Yes, the Spirit of God is dwelling in you, but that doesn't make you God. You are partakers of his divine nature. Correct? Yeah, but does it make you deity? Does it make you God? Now, Acts 17, 29 is talking about his divinity. This has to do with his attributes. Divinity. Now, Colossians 2, go back over there. For those of you who want it, let me give you the word. For Acts, in Acts 17, 29, the Greek word is spelled this way. You ready? P-H-E-I-O-S. Okay? So Acts 17, 29, when it talks about the Godhead, it is the attributes of God or to be God-like. To be like God. You understand that? Not really? Okay. Let me see if I can illustrate it for you. This morning when you walk outside, you look up and you see a sun. Right? What do you feel on your skin? The rays of the sun. Correct? The rays of the sun. Now, you have the source, which is the sun. That's the essence or the substance. And then the rays that come from the sun is, is what you would call, it's sort of like divinity, the attributes of the sun. Correct? Okay. So the sun is the substance or the essence. It's the source. The rays are the resource that the sun produces. 
so when you feel the rays of the sun, you are experiencing the resources of the source, the sun. So when you talk about divinity, you're talking about the attributes, then that's sort of like the rays of God. Does that make sense to you? For example, like power, His grace, His forgiveness for us. Those are attributes. We've already talked about attributes last week, correct? So the attributes of God is to be God-like, is to have the attributes of the power of God, etc., so forth. But it's different because that is the resources of God's Spirit. Whereas in Colossians chapter 2 and verse 9, go there. It tells us again, Paul talking about the Godhead, for in him dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. This word is different in the Greek. Not real different, but a little different. Okay? This word in the Greek is T H E O P E S E. Alright? Now, the root of that word is Theos. T H E O S. Now, in Acts 17, 29, the Greek word was T-H-E-I-O-S. This word in Colossians 2 is T-H-E-O-S as far as the root form. So there's a, as far as English is concerned, an I is dropped out of the word. Does it make sense to you? My point is, forgive me for being technical, but my point is this, is that Colossians 2 is theos. Amen. The other one that we talked about in Acts 17 is pronounced Theos. Very similar, but there's a little difference in the uh, spelling of the word. Now, when Colossians says all the fullness of the Godhead dwells in him, he's talking about God himself, the nature of God himself, the essence of God, the source. Okay? That makes sense. The very nature of God, complete being, if you will. All the fullness of the Godhead is in Jesus Christ. The very nature of God Himself, deity, is in Jesus Christ. Not just divinity. God doesn't just have the uh, Jesus doesn't just have the attributes of God. Acts seventeen twenty nine. God, the very nature of God, the essence of God, is literally in Jesus Christ. So he doesn't just have the resources of God. He is the source. He is God himself. Does that make sense? Okay. So Colossians 2 is telling you where the, the Godhead is. The Godhead, or deity, God, is in Jesus Christ bodily. All right? In Acts 17, it's talking about the attributes of God. Now, the attributes of God come out of the source the attributes of the resources, right? But the uh, source, the nature of God is the one that's producing these attributes. The nature of God is the underlying essence of God that produces the attributes of God. You can't have the attributes of God without the source, God himself. So divinity speaks of the resources, the attributes of God. Deity speaks of the source, the very nature of God. So when it talks about Jesus as all the fullness of the Godhead, literally God indwelt that body. He was God come in the flesh. 
so he was more than just divine. He wasn't just like God. He didn't just have the attributes of God. He was God in flesh. God in body. So the Spirit of God indwelt the body of Jesus Christ so that he was more than divine. He was deity. He was God come in flesh. The Spirit of God was in him. And he also, because he was God, he was divine, having the attributes of God. Does that make sense to you? If it does, say praise the Lord. Now, Romans, Paul talks about the Godhead in Romans chapter 1. Again, Paul mentions this term Godhead three times. In Romans chapter 1, verse 19 and 20. Let's read it together. Are you there? Okay. Because that which may be known of God is manifest in them, for God has showed it unto them. For the invisible things of him from the creation of the world are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. Now the word Godhead here is the same word that's used in Acts 17.29, and that's connected to his divinity or his attributes. All right? So when you look at the creation of the world, you see an attribute of God, and that attribute is of God is power. But he's a very wise God, and he's a very powerful God. So the power of God, the wisdom of God, is the attributes of God. Does that make sense? Okay? So here in Romans 1.20, then the Godhead is talking about his divinity or his attributes. Colossians chapter 2, though, is a stronger word than just divinity. It tells you that God is in Jesus Christ bodily. That he doesn't just have the attributes of God uh, or divinity, but he is God himself in bodily form. It is as if Colossians is saying, uh, when we talk about Jesus, Colossians is saying, when we talk about Jesus, to talk about his divinity is not enough. You have to say that he is God himself in body, that there's only one body, and in that body, Jesus Christ, the humanity of Jesus Christ, that one body, in that one body dwells the eternal spirit of God himself. So Colossians is saying, unlike Acts 17 and Romans 1, uh, where it speaks of the attributes of God, his divinity, Colossians says we need to take it a step further, and we need to show you that he's more than just divine. He is God come in the flesh. Okay? And all the fullness of the Godhead dwells in him. The very being of God, the spirit of God himself is in Jesus Christ bodily. So that when you saw Jesus, listen to me carefully, the body you saw was his humanity. And that is the Son of God. The Son of God is the body, the humanity of Jesus. But inside of that body was the eternal Spirit of God, the Father. All right? So the Spirit of God that was in Jesus would be known as God or as the Father or the Holy Ghost. Correct? Amen? But when you talk about the body, 
in which the Spirit of God dwelt, you're talking about sonship. So when you saw Jesus Christ, if you were alive in those days, and you saw him bodily walking around in the earth, you would see his body, that sonship. But the Bible says all the fullness, all the fullness of the Godhead dwells in him. So you would not just see the Son, a man, but in that man, Jesus Christ, was the Father embodied. That means that God added to himself another nature called humanity or the sonship. So that when you saw Jesus, you saw a dual nature of humanity, that is sonship, and deity, that's the Father. So Jesus is both God and man at the same time. All the fullness of the Godhead dwelt in him. Does that make sense? And, and, and we're talking about bodily, correct? Okay. Now, why is this significant? Because if you go back to Acts chapter 9, you will see that Paul had an encounter with Jesus. Are y'all with me up to this point? Okay. You understand Acts 17, 29, talking about his attributes. You understand Romans 1, 20, talking about his attributes. All right? You understand that Colossians chapter 2 is talking about not his attributes only, but it's talking about the very nature of God himself within Jesus Christ's body. With me there. All right. Acts chapter 9. Now, Paul speaks of this, or uses this term Godhead three times. And uh, what is he doing? Well, the scripture says this. He's on his way to Damascus in verse 3 of Acts chapter 9. As he journeyed, he came near Damascus, and suddenly there shined round about him a light from heaven. He fell to the earth and heard a voice saying unto him, Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? And he said, Who art thou, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom thou persecutest. It's hard for thee to kick against the pricks. Right? Now, verse 6, He trembling and astonished said, Lord, what wilt thou have me to do? And the Lord said unto him, Arise and go to the city, and it shall be told thee what thou, thou must do. So here he has, a vision of the Lord Jesus Christ. So when Paul writes or speaks in Acts 17, 29, Luke is writing, amen, do you understand what I'm saying? Reference is made to the Godhead. Or in Romans 1, 20, or in Colossians 2, Paul is saying to you who he saw on the road to Damascus. That he didn't just see somebody that was like God, but he saw God himself in bodily form. Now, do you understand that? Okay, we've already talked about, we've defined God to you last Sunday morning. God is spirit. So God is invisible. If he's spirit, he's invisible. So no man has seen God at any time. The only God that you'll ever see is in the bodily form of Jesus Christ. Okay? So the invisible Spirit of God indwelt Jesus, and that's what Paul is saying. He's saying in Colossians chapter 2, 
He's not just like God. He's not just divine, but he is God indwelt bodily. That makes sense. So that Jesus is not in the Godhead separate from the Father and the Holy Ghost. All the fullness of the Godhead is in them. Amen. The very nature and being and essence of God, Father, Son, Holy Ghost, is in Jesus Christ. All the fullness of the Godhead is in Him bodily. You with me? Father, Son, Holy Ghost is in Jesus Christ. So the Son is His humanity, and the deity that's in Him is the Father. So He is the Father, Son, Holy Ghost. He's not a separate person in the Godhead. All the fullness of the Godhead is in Him. Father, Son, and Holy Ghost is in Jesus Christ. Amen. All right, you understand that? You really do. Now, why do why are these terms, Father, Son, Holy Ghost, used of God? Well, first of all, Father speaks of God in creation. Son speaks of God coming in humanity to redeem us. And then Holy Ghost speaks of the Spirit of God dwelling in you, regenerating you. Okay? Now, I know you know all this, but it's, it's important for us to go back over it again because many of, these, many of the people I'm preaching to this morning don't know this. So the Father in creation, Son in redemption, Holy Ghost indwelling the believer, regenerating you. Right? Three manifestations of one God, not three separate persons of God. Correct? Okay, say praise the Lord. Now, technical terms. So we believe, I believe, and I teach that there is one God. Okay? I believe and I teach a oneness theology. Now, I, in the process of getting ready to teach you this morning, I studied many uh, systematic theological writings, and many of them are Trinitarian in viewpoint. Okay? Uh, so I am aware of what the viewpoint of the Trinitarian theologians is. Okay? But I, having that knowledge about what the Trinitarians believe, I'm a oneness believer. So I am teaching you what I'm teaching this morning in contrast to, ten, uh, in contrast to Trinitarian theology. I am teaching you oneness theology because I'm an apostolic one God pastor and believer, which is to say, I do not believe in the doctrine of the Trinity that there are three separate persons in the Godhead because the Bible says all the fullness of the Godhead is in Him. How can He be a separate person in the Godhead if all the fullness of the Godhead is in Him? Now, so my theology is rooted in the Scripture. Alright? Not in the theology, the minds of men. I know what they say. I know what they believe. I've studied it. But I am teaching you oneness theology in contrast to Trinitarian theology. Okay? Say praise the Lord. Do you see that? Okay. So how many used to think that don't really lift their hands or even 
maybe some of you don't even know, uh, you were you believe that God, that Jesus, was the Son, and He was separate from the Father, and separate from the Holy Ghost. That the Father was one person, the Son was one person, and the Holy Ghost was another person. Okay? Well, then you you believe in the doctrine of the Trinity, and then you would so you would have to change the Scripture in Colossians chapter two to say that Jesus is in the Godhead. But the Bible doesn't say Jesus is in the Godhead. The Bible says the Godhead is in him. So by this one verse, which doctrine is correct? Is Jesus one among three? Or is the form, all the fullness of the Godhead in him? The Bible says it's in him. He is the Father. He is the Son. He is the Holy Ghost. Three manifestations of one God. But we recognize that there is a difference in nature. The Son is humanity. The Father is his deity. So there's a difference in nature. The humanity is just not the same as the Spirit of God. The humanity is a different nature. It's sonship. It, but it is a nature, not uh, just a revelation of God. It is a nature of God. Does it make sense? So his humanity is different from his deity in that simply in his humanity he's human. In his deity he is God. So we're not just talking about a revelation of God. We're talking about there is a difference in nature. Jesus is dual in nature. Okay. I just, I, I just don't feel like I'm connecting with you this morning. All right. Let's just go on. Let's do the best we can. Okay, do you understand the difference then between divinity and deity? Divinity is, see, you can have the divine nature in you, the Spirit of God in you, but that doesn't make you God. Okay? We experience the attributes of God, the divinity of God, the power of God, amen, so on and so forth. But I'm not God. But Jesus, the Spirit of God was in him, but he was God come in the flesh. Okay? Father in creation, God in sonship, redemption. Holy Ghost in regeneration and dwelling the believer. Three manifestations of one God, not three separate persons in the Godhead. Okay, now let me define for you then the doctrine of the Trinity. I just gave you the definition of the, the doctrine of the oneness of God. Now what is the doctrine of the Trinity? Okay, I'm going to read some real technical information to you. Uh, I'm not trying to put you to sleep this morning. Okay? All right. This is uh, coming out of a Trinitarian systematic theological writing by Thiessen. Uh, teaches the Christian theology of the Trinity means this. Are you ready? Three eternal distinctions in the one divine essence known as Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. And these distinctions are known as three persons. Okay? So what the doctrine of the Trinity teaches is this. Everybody understand the, the deity or the essence of God or the substance? Okay. Well, let me just deal here. Let's go to Hebrews chapter 1. going to get it done, but 
this is a this is challenging probably for you to understand. Ask God to help you with this. Uh, because it's, it takes you beyond just human intellect. You need a revelation of it. All right. Uh, Hebrews chapter 1. Turn there. And read your Bibles this morning. You bring your Bible while you come to church. If you don't have one, we can uh, furnish one for you. Okay, as a guest. All right, Hebrews chapter 1. Look at this very carefully. This is speaking of Jesus in chapter 1 of Hebrews, who being the brightness of his glory and the expressed image of his person. That's the King James Version, correct? All right, the Greek word is hypostasis. Hypostasis. When you talk about that word that's translated person in the English, is the Greek word hypostasis. It should be translated essence, or substance. So it says, who be in the brightness of his glory, the express image of his substance or his essence. It's saying that Jesus is the express image of the essence of God. When you see Jesus, you see God himself in human form. Okay? Now, so he is the express image of his substance or his essence. So first of all, Let's define substance or essence in relationship to God. Essence and substance is this, that which underlies all outward manifestation. It is the reality itself, whether material or immaterial, the substratum of anything, that in which the qualities or attributes inhere the nature of God himself. If there were no substance, there could be no attributes. To speak of God is to speak of an essence, a substance, not of mere idea or personification of an idea. And that went in one ear and right out the other. Okay. 1-3, who being the brightness of his glory and the expressed image of his substance. So the substance or the essence of God is the very nature of God, the spirit of God, correct? The attributes then in here, they're in the spirit of God. They're produced by the spirit of God. Does that make sense to you? So we're talking about absence or substance. We're talking about God himself, the being of God, the spirit of God. Now, where were we? Okay, I gave you the definition then of the doctrine of the Trinity. That's where we were. Right? So listen to it again. This again, this is coming out of thesis writings, um, theological writings. Christian theology, Trinity means three eternal distinctions in the one divine essence known as Father, Son, and Holy Ghost, and these distinctions are called persons in Trinitarian doctrine. So basically what they're saying is, Trinitarians are saying, we believe in one God. You hear me? Trinitarians that know what they're talking about believe in one God. As far as you can't divide God, you can't divide His being. 
You can't divide his nature, the essence of God, the substance of God, what makes who God is. You can't divide him. That's what they were saying. It's impossible to, to divide God. So Trinitarians do believe in one God. But what they say is within that one God, that one being of God, there are three separate distinctions of that one essence. And those distinctions are called Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. And they, but they say they are eternal. All right? So although they, they don't believe you can divide the Spirit of God, they will say that the Father, Son, and Holy Ghost are co-eternal, co-existent, and co-equal. That means the Father, Son, and Holy Ghost have already always been in the essence of God. All right? Eternally. That means that they teach that the Son pre-existed and that the Son was eternal and that the Son is co-equal to God. Correct? That's where they miss it. They believe in one essence of God, one God in that sense, but they say that the Son pre-existence pre-existed in a form. All right. Whoa. Okay, let's go over and look at another passage. Philippians chapter 2. You would not believe. I say this about 2 o'clock last night. Reading. Trinitarian theology. And I'm going to show you something very interesting. Okay? Philippians chapter 2. This is called a hymn of the, of the early church, New Testament church, is a hymn. Now, Philippians chapter 2. <coughs> verse 5. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, Stop. This one passage is used by Trinitarians to try to prove the pre-existence of Jesus as the Son. You with me here? Look at the word again. It says, who being in the form of God, stop. Now, what the Trinitarian does Okay, I'm being kind to you. I'm just being truthful with you. The Trinitarian believe there's one God, but they teach that there were three forms in that one God. Three forms in that eternal spirit, that invisible spirit of God, that there were literally three forms in that one essence of God. They say these forms were not visible but invisible. They say these forms were not physical, not physical, are visible, but invisible forms. And they call these three forms Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. What they teach is that this passage is saying that Jesus preexisted as the Son and he was in a form called the Son, but this form was invisible in that one divine essence, as well as the Father was invisible in that one divine essence, 
as well as the Holy Ghost being invisible in that one essence. But each of those three had an invisible form in that one essence. And that somehow Jesus in this invisible form who pre-existed as the Son in this invisible form in that one essence of God, somehow Jesus as the Son came down and robed himself, incarnated himself in bodily form and uh, emptied himself of his divine rights or prerogatives. That's what they teach. That somehow in this transition from being the invisible form of the Son and the one essence of God, he came down and became a man, and when he did, he laid aside his divine rights. No. He never did stop being God. He never ceased being God. And he never laid aside any of the attributes of God whatsoever. So the teaching that there were three forms, Father, Son, and Holy Ghost, in the one essence of God, even in eternity, is not what this passage is teaching. This passage is teaching you who, being in the form of God, is talking about he's in the image of God. He's like Adam when Adam was created. This is not even talking about his deity. This is talking about his humanity. Who being in the form of God or the image of God. Adam was created in the image of God when he was born. Well, this passage is not talking about Jesus pre-existing as God in some, you know, invisible spiritual form as the Son. And then he came as the Son onto the earth and put on a bodily form. The form it's talking about is not his pre-existence, okay, as God. Uh, it's talking about his form as a man. Like Adam. Now that doesn't cost you anything, but that took me about two hours to really, really study and look at. Okay. All right, you with me here? Okay, so let me go back to this. When it talks about you, see, man, if I just stay away from the doctrine of the Trinity, what they believe, we'll do just fine. But when I start trying to tell you what Trinitarians believe, it is so out there that I have a hard time even communicating it to you because it's not true. It's not a, a true doctrine that you find in the Bible. So you will see me I'll do my best to try to convey the thoughts that they have, but because it's not biblical, it's not going to make sense to you or I. But you have to go back to the Bible. What is the Bible talking about? Okay, let me let me do it. Let me do it this way. All right, praise the Lord. This Philippians two passage. Then, now, by the way, uh, where it? Let me give you the reference. Dogmatic theology by Shed. Uh, is the one that teaches that there are three forms of God in one essence. Okay? That's page 233, Dogmatic Theology by Shedd, who's a Trinitarian. And uh, that's what he teaches, that the Son had a non-physical form. The Father and the Holy Ghost, uh, also an invisible form, later became visible. Now, so I did some study on this page 94 
in a book called I Am by David S. Norris on oneness theology. Here's what uh, this theology book says, okay? He quotes another theologian. He says, the problem of preexistence, the problem of preexistence of the Son. Now listen carefully. Did Jesus preexist? Yes, as God. But he did not preexist as the Son. But they're trying to use Philippians chapter 2 to teach that he preexisted as the Son in some kind of invisible form. Okay? So Jesus did preexist as God, but he did not preexist as the Son. So, uh, you can get this book, by the way, by David S. Norris uh, on Oneness Theology. You can pay for 94 anyway. He cites other theologians. He says the problem of preexistence. Incarnation is here regarded as kenosis rather than epiphany. John 1, 1 through 18, 1 Timothy 3, 16 simply says God was manifest in the flesh. 1 Timothy 3, 16, all right? But he's, anyway, let me go on. Number two, problem of preexistence. Only here would there be, all right, a reference to a preexistent reflection and decision of Jesus Christ. Number three, he would be said to give up the form of God, divinity. If you interpret that passage this way, the preexistence of the Son, that means that he would have to give up the form of God for the form of a servant. He did not do that. He did not give up his deity to become a servant. But for you to teach this, use this passage to teach the preexistence of the Son is to say that he came and gave up his deity in order to become a man. All right? Because the Bible talks about that he, uh, we'll go a little further, uh, verse 7, he made himself of no reputation. The Greek word canoe is, is sometimes, or kenosis, it says, made himself of no reputation. Sometimes it's translated he emptied himself or he lowered himself. Okay. Now listen carefully. Jesus did not set aside his deity to become a man. Okay? Correct? So the, this teaching of the preexistence of the Son, you can't put it in this passage. It doesn't work. Alright? So again, number three. He would be said to give up the form of God, divinity, for the form of a servant. If you're using this, this to teach that it's talking about Jesus in his deity, that he preexisted as the Son, and that this form preexisted, and that this passage is talking about his deity, then you have to say he set aside his deity to become a man. That's what the point is. But the Bible's not teaching the preexistence of the Son in some kind of invisible form in the essence of God. This is about his humanity. Okay? So I'll read again. He would be said to give up the form of God's divinity for the form of a servant's humanity. 
that is to interpret his departing form. Uh, let's see. Made himself of no reputation. Verse 7. That's the way you would have to interpret that verse. Okay, 4. Verse 6, who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, took upon him the form of a servant, and was made in the likeness of men, and being found in the fashion, as a man humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Wherefore God also hath highly exalted him, and given him a name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, of things in heaven, things in earth, and things under the earth. Correct? And every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. We teach this as a pre-existent Son in some form in eternity would be to uh, that the exaltation that is given him as Lord is a higher state than being in the form of God within him. And I know that's hard for you to get. But it, uh, and I understand that because it took me about an hour or two just to get this, try to get this down to you, be able to explain it to you. Now let me bring it to you from a oneness perspective, and I believe it's accurate. To read the passage as a statement referring to his human existence, the human existence of Jesus, rather than his pre-existence, have. Uh, the ability or enables one to avoid these problems. Now, uh, Norris is the one that's writing the article, but he's, he's citing another theologian. And this theologian is given four problems with the pre existence of the Son. And then he comes to the conclusion and he says to read the passage as a statement referring to his human existence rather than his pre existence enables you to avoid these problems. who being in the form of God recalls the language of Genesis and the creation of Adam it is a declaration of the humanity of Jesus amen that draws language from Adam form is not a reference to deity but to humanity the text does not say Christ was in fact in the form of God. The Greek disallows equality in the strict sense of the term. Thus, like Adam, Jesus was made in the image of God. Yet, unlike Adam, he was sinless. And then as uh, this man, B-A-K-K-A-N, Bacon, Bacon, whatever his name is, puts it, he is the man God intended man to be. As a man, he did not grasp at divine prerogatives unlike Adam. So when the devil came and tempted Adam and said, if you eat of this, the fruit of the tree, you shall be as God, knowing good and evil. When he came to tempt Eve, she took that fruit because she wanted to be as God. And then he, she gave that fruit to Adam, and he took that fruit. But when Jesus Christ came in the world as a man, it's talking about he came in the in, in image of God, just like Adam was in the image of God. But he didn't grasp. He 
didn't seek to grasp the divine rights. Okay, divine prerogatives of God, unlike Adam. Okay. What he's saying is he simply came to fulfill his mission to redeem man and restore back to man what was lost in Adam. And when he did that, he limited himself in his humanity, not his deity. He limited himself in his humanity as to what he could say and as to what he could think. There were limitations that he walked in because he received the anointing of God to fulfill a specific purpose and mission on the earth as a man. God, yes, he was. God in flesh had a mission, and that was to redeem man and restore back to man all that was lost in Adam. So there is a contrast in Philippians chapter 2 between the first man, Adam, who was in the form of God or in the image of God, to the last Adam, Jesus Christ, who was in the image of God as a man, who came into the world to fulfill a mission, and that was to restore everything that was lost in Adam. And in fulfilling that mission, he did not reach out and grasp, unlike Adam, the divine rights of God. Does that make sense to you? That's what the passage is talking about. He's not talking about a pre-existent son and a pre-existent father and a pre-existent Holy Ghost. And he is a pre-existent son, had a form, you know, before. It's the form of his, of his humanity, the Almighty Lord. We get that. Okay, let me read a little further. Those who read the passage as the pre-existent son becoming incarnate translate the phrase but emptied himself or as your Bible says uh, but made himself of no reputation they translate the phrase but emptied himself the underlying Greek verb kino, kenosis has been defined as lowering and this is what they teach 313, when the pre-existent son underwent some sort of self-limiting of divine attributes in the incarnation. Many reject this and see rather that as a man Jesus did not amen succumb to temptation unlike Adam to grasp divine prerogatives but humbled himself. Jesus was restricted as a man as to what he could do and say. His mission was to save man Restore what was lost by Adam as a representative man. So when it talks about uh, who being in the form of God, it's not talking about his pre-existence, okay? It's not talking about his deity and having some pre-existent form of a son in that essence of deity before he became a man. When it says uh, here, Bible talks about him being in the form of God, it takes you back to Adam, who was created in the image of God. This is talking about the humanity of this, not the deity of this at all. Not his pre-existence. The pre-existence of this uh, here as a son is not even in the passage. Okay? Let me caution you. But it, I mean, it, it did throw me crazy when I read that Trinitarian theology that said this form of God, Philippians chapter 2, is some kind of, you know, there's three forms in God, you know, three forms in this one spirit of God, and these forms are all invisible. They're not physical bodies, but they existed, amen, forever, in eternity. What? 
I'm looking around going, what? Because that doesn't make sense to me. That's why sometimes when you read Trinitarian theological writings, you better be careful because if you don't, if you don't have the Holy Ghost and you don't have an understanding of the oneness of God, you'll fall for it. You'll start walking around and say, yeah, I can explain the doctrine of the Trinity to you, but there are three forms of God in eternity in the one essence of God, and these forms, by the way, did not have any visible form. Really? Okay. That's what the Trinitarians believe. Some that they use the text to get that. And I'm going to my mind, that's not right. So that sends me searching. That sends me digging. Okay? That's why I tell you, Trinitarian theology does not make a bit of sense. Now, this, I took, in, in case some of y'all are looking at this, and this guy just fumbling all over the place, he doesn't know what he's talking about. He needs to take the Bible college course. Well, all fine and good. I've got, I did take the Bible college course. Okay, it's called Christology. I took this course in Indiana Bible College, all right, uh, where we studied the oneness of God and the doctrine of the Trinity. So I did take a Bible college course. So if you need that, I'll tell you. I'll give you that. So I'll be a, no, I ain't, I'm not. Now, in this college course, here's what old Daniel says about the passage. Good Lord, where did I just find it? This Philippians chapter 2 hymn, he interprets it along the same lines. That's speaking of the humanity of Jesus uh, rather than I didn't think I was going to read this to you, but I will read this to you. Take a note of time to find it. Okay, now, what I just shared with you that I've written down came out of uh, Norris's book on this. It's called The I Am on Oneness Theology. It's a fantastic book, by the way. But this comes out of that course by, and this is by Thomas O'Daniel. And uh, he was the instructor of the course. Now, here's what he says. Listen carefully about Philippians chapter 2. Question, does the kenosis passage of two, uh, Philippians 2, 6 through 11, mean Jesus gave up divine attributes when he wrote himself in flesh? The answer is no. All the fullness of the Godhead dwelt in Jesus Christ, including all the divine attributes, Colossians 2, 9. A view of Jesus that says he possessed any less than all the divine attributes leads to subordinationism or a teaching that Jesus was a junior or demigod akin to Arianism, Jehovah Witness, and Mormons. Some Trinitarians' interpretation of this passage called the kenosis for self-emptying or self-humiliation are certainly open to this accusation. When God robed himself in flesh as the incarnate Christ, I'm reading it again. When God robed himself in flesh as the incarnate Christ, the divine prerogatives of glory and honor being veiled by the flesh were not readily apparent, and he did humble himself even unto the humiliating death of the flesh by crucifixion 
but his deity was not dismissed in any capacity. The beginning verses of this passage, verse 6 and 7. Okay, let's go back and look at it. Who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, and took upon him the form of a servant, and was made in likeness of men. The beginning verses of this passage, verse 6 and 7, may be best understood by viewing them in the light of Adam Christology. Simply put, Adam Christology concerns Jesus in the role of the second Adam really last Adam making right what Adam messed up Romans 5 12 through 19 this aspect of Christ's work was emphasized in the Christology of early Christianity in this passage Paul quotes a hymn that may have been contrasting Adam and Jesus if so verse 6 and 7 refer to Adam and not Jesus in this view Propagated by Doctor uh, by James Dunn and Colin Brown and other scholars, being in the form of God refers to Adam being created in the image of God, and thought it not robbery to be equal to God refers to his eating of the tree that made that he might be like God. Verse seven refers to the consequences of his sin and the fall, which brought a sinful nature upon all men. In contrast. Jesus being God, robed himself in flesh and became a man, and being found in fashion as a man, humbled himself and became obedient to the death, even the death of the cross. We are to have the mind of Christ and not the mind of Adam. If this is the correct understanding of the passage, and it certainly has some merit, it takes away from the Trinitarians one of their favorite scriptures to try to support their unendable doctrine of eternal sonship. definition of, uh, of uh, the doctrine of the Trinity as far as Trinitarians believe, right? Let me give it to you real... Okay, again, they teach one God, but three distinct persons in that God, and these three distinct persons in that God are eternal, including the same. Okay? But I've already taught you the only, the only part of Jesus that's eternal is, is the Spirit of God that was in Jesus. As a son, he had a beginning. As a son, he was born. As a son, he was begotten. As a son, he was born in Bethlehem. When did, okay, when did the sonship begin? It didn't pre-exist in eternity. In the divine essence of God, in some invisible form, the sonship began when he was conceived in the womb of the Virgin Mary and then born in Bethlehem. That's when the sonship began. That's when God added to himself that other nature, when the Holy Ghost overshadowed Mary, and she was with child. The sonship did not pre-exist. How can you have a pre-existing son and a begotten son at the same time? The only way you can is if you believe he's some invisible form, this pre-existing son was an invisible form, and then came down and incarnated himself and gave up his divine attributes. That's heaven. Never gave up his divine He was God. The eternal spirit of God came down and became a man. Okay. Amen. 
condescended to our level. If you want to know it says, condescended to our level by becoming a man like us. But he never gave up his, his divine rights. For it, it was impossible to have a pre-existent son and a born son. Correct? Only in the mind of God did he pre-exist. Prophetically, he did. Okay, real basic. Is this too heavy for y'all? It's too heavy for a Sunday morning. Sunday school class. Too heavy. I told you to teach on the Godhead. Okay. Doctrine of the Trinity. What is that doctrine then? Body explained it to you that Doctrine of the Trinity, so you can understand it, three separate persons in the Godhead, and they're co-equal, co-eternal, and co-existent. There's one God in three separate persons, or three persons in one substance. These persons are called God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. That's all it is. Everything I just read to you there is. The Bible never called Jesus God the Son. He's called the Son of God. Because the Sonship is his humanity. He is God in He's God in Sonship, but he never called God the Son. He's called the Son of God. As to his humanity. Okay, y'all ready? You with me? Alright, let's start at the very beginning then. All the fullness of the Godhead dwells in him bodily. The essence of God, the very being of God himself was in Jesus Christ bodily. The body is his humanity. The essence of God that was in him, the Godhead, is the spirit of God that was in him. Right? And then Acts 17, 29 and Romans 1, 20 tells us that he also had the attributes of God, divine. So he was not only the the attributes of God, or having the attributes of God, but he was the source. He was God underneath the attributes. The attributes are the resources of God, the rays of God. He's the, he is God, right? So that all the force of the Godhead, Father, Son, Holy Ghost, is in him. He's not in a trinity, pre-existing, co-eternal, with the Father and Son, invisible form. Going by the Bible, if you didn't understand anything I read about all that Trinitarian thought and concept, if you just get the basic down here in Colossians 2, verse 9, all the fullness of the Godhead dwells in Him bodily. There's only one body, and that's the Son. The Holy Ghost doesn't have a body. The Father doesn't have a body. It's, you know what I'm saying? As far as His essence, His Spirit, but he took upon himself another nature. That's called a body or humanity or sonship. That's why Jesus is called God incarnate. God put on flesh. He wrote himself in flesh. So he's not co-eternal. He as a son had a beginning. He was begotten. He only pre-existed as God. He's 
not co-equal, which means that humanity is not equal to his deity. One God manifests as Father, Son, and Holy Ghost, and he is numerically one God. Now, well, where did this, this term Trinity come from? Okay. Well, let me give you some dates. By the way, the word Trinity is not in the Bible. Okay. That might shock some of you. The word Trinity is not in the Bible. Uh, so where do we get this word Trinity? Trinity, the Greek form is triads, T-R-I-A-S, used first by Theophilus of Antioch, A.D. 181. A word triad, T-R-I-A-D, was used by Plontius, P-L-O-N-T-I, U.S. in 270 A.D. The Latin is Trinitus, and it was used by Tertullian in A.D. 220. Okay? And so when you talk about the Trinity, they're basically saying that God is a tri-unity. Or he's a tri-uni God. Correct? That's where it came from. So Tertullian wasn't the first one that, that came up with the thought. It went back to the Greek philosophers. Okay, with me? Okay, Lord. Well, what does the Bible say? Well, let's get into the word of the Lord here. The Bible says there's one God. And this oneness is numerical oneness. Go to Deuteronomy 6. Old Testament scriptures for the oneness of God. By the way, again, the Trinitarians, unless they're tritheistic, believe in three separate gods, the Trinitarians will tell you they believe in one God, the essence of God. No, they say that. Okay? But the problem is where they try to bring in persons, the three separate persons, and say they're co-eternal, co-equal, and co-existent. That's where the problem is. Sometimes you got to be careful when you talk to a Trinitarian and you tell them, you believe in three gods. They'll say, no, I don't believe in three gods. I believe in one God. Well, if they believe there's one God, one being in God, the nature of God, they believe there's three distinct persons in that one essence of God. So they say, okay, well, explain that to me then. Explain that to me then. You believe in one God and three persons in that, in that essence of one God? What is it? Were there three of them inside the essence of God? Was the essence of God outside of them? What form were they in? What form was the Father and the Son and the Holy Ghost in if they were in the essence of God? What did they look like? Describe this to me. Show me. So I'm trying to help you understand that you can't walk up to a Trinity and say, you believe in three gods? So they come back and say, no, I believe in one God. But where's the problem? Three separate persons, co-equal, co-eternal, and co-existent. That's not good enough. So let's establish, first of all, that God is one. We're talking about the eternal spirit of God. Just one. Let's look at uh, Deuteronomy 6. And by the way, if you want some uh, in-depth teaching on this, 
I taught a series uh, on the oneness of God called One One Hour in Oneness. And that doesn't mean we just took one hour. We took one hour per service. One hour in oneness. Now, you don't even have to buy it. I'm not trying to sell anything. You can go on the internet, Bible Center Fellowship, okay? We have an internet website, Bible Center Fellowship, uh, .org. And over to the side, you'll see a link. It, it's... Uh, as teachings, one of the teachings that are on the internet for everybody to access. They don't have to buy anything, pay for anything. You can go on the internet and access that, that series called One Hour in Oneness. And we went into great detail. So I'm trying to cram, trying to put within maybe a couple hours this morning a lot of teaching. It took us months to teach. So for your information, if you want it, one hour in oneness. You can order the DVDs, the CDs, or you can go online and listen to it online. And I encourage you to do it. Because we gave you very in-depth teaching on the oneness of God. Okay, let's look at the kingdom. Okay, Deuteronomy 6, 4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. yod heh Hey, our Elohim is one yod heh Right? Yahweh. Some people pronounce it Yahweh. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. Echad. E-C-H-A-D. Echad. Now, when a Trinitarian reads the passage, they say Echad, one, means unity. They will say it does not mean numerical oneness. All right? So let's look at it again. Deuteronomy 6, 4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. They will say, yeah, he's one, but it's a unity of oneness, not a numerical oneness or absolute oneness. Now, it is true that Echad is used as a word meaning unity, but it is also used as a word that speaks of oneness numerically. Okay? What they will teach, the Trinitarian will teach, uh, they will say, well, if the reference is to God being one numerically, they should have used the word, or the word in the Hebrew should have been uh, Yachid, Y-A-C-H-E-A-D, And they say Yachid means absolute oneness or numerical oneness. But they say because the Bible uses the reference when referring to God as hero is the Lord our God is one Lord and that word one in reference to God is echad. They say he's one God but it's uh, oneness in unity which means they're, they're in unity as three persons. And they say Yahid means absolute oneness. And they'll just drop it. They'll just leave you hanging right there. Did you hear what I say? They say, if, if this Deuteronomy 6 passage, the other passages that say there's one God, refers to God in absolute numerical oneness, it should have been Yahid. Yahid. But it's Echad. And they say that word is a word that speaks of unity, not numerical oneness. And that's what they say. So you know what I did? 
I got my strong concordance, and I went and looked up the words. And Yahim is not only used for absolute oneness, it's also used in reference to unity as well. And the strong concordance says that Echad does not just speak of unity, but it also speaks of numerical oneness as well. So they're misleading you when they tell you that when Echad, the Hebrew word Echad is used, it always speaks of unity in reference to God, but Echad never speaks of the oneness in the numerical sense of God. If Yahweh should have been the word, they're misleading you. You've got a strong concordance. All you have to do is go look it up for yourself. Look up the word one in the Strong's Concordance, and out beside the word one, you'll have a number, and it'll take you to the back of the concordance, and it'll tell you a definition of that word in the Hebrew. Okay? You look at one, and it'll say yeah, this number, and then the back will be Yahweh. And then another one down here, Deuteronomy 6 4, the word one in the English, it's Echad, it'll give you a number by that word, it'll take you to the back, give you a definition. When you reach right there in theology, they can they will mislead you. So let's look at it. Hero is that the Lord our God is one Lord. Echad. Well, obviously, there's unity in the Father and the Son. But the unity is not a unity of persons, it's a unity of attributes. It's a unity of will. Amen. Praise God. So we don't have a problem even, even saying there's unity in Jesus, in the Father and the Son. We don't have a problem with saying that. There is unity in His will, His purpose, and His attributes. But He's not just divine, remember? He's deity. That means that He is one in essence, uh, in miracle oneness. Not just unity of purpose, not just unity of will, not just unity of mind, but oneness absolutely one God in miracle. Not one God, three persons, and both three persons in, in unity oneness. Mind, will, and purpose. More than that. It is that, but it's more than that. Are you with me so far? Here always the Lord our God is God, one Lord. Correct? Psalm 86, verse 10, He's God alone. Now, let me give you um, give you God, give you the numbers. Look at Strong's number 258, Strong's number 259. With me? Look it up for yourself. That's the word that's fine. 258, Also look at 2297 and 2298. Strong's concordance. All right? It will show you that Echad is not just uh, oneness in unity, it's oneness numerically as well. Okay? But they lead you to thinking that Echad never speaks of numerical oneness, it speaks of unity oneness. 
All right? And then they will say, Yahid means absolute oneness, and that's the word that should be used in reference to God if he's speaking of numerical oneness. But I found in Deuteronomy 33, 4 through 5, that Yahid also is used speaking of unity, not just absolute oneness. So they mislead you on both accounts, make you think that Nekhod is never a numerical oneness, and they make you think that Yahid is numerical oneness, but never unity oneness. And I just gave you the passage that speaks of unity oneness for Yahid. Now, let me look at a few passages here that talk about numerical oneness of the God. Just examples of uh, what we have for men. First Kings 22 8. Let's go there. Why am I doing this? Because a lot of you are going to pick up Trinitarian theological writings. You're going to read them and go, there it is. And you're not going to spend the time to find out if what they're saying is true or not. So I'm going to do it for you. Deuteronomy 33, 4 through 5. I don't know where was I looking. I was going to Echad, right? Okay, Echad. Okay, uh, 1 Kings 22, 8. Now, bear with me because I always spend so much time in study and a lot of these scriptures are written down. I pray to God I have the right reference, all right? Just bear with me. Uh, please. What does it say? Someone want to read it for me? Okay, it says there's one man. That word one is a God. It's not speaking of a man in unity, it's speaking of one numerical man. All the way. Deuteronomy 33, 4 through 5. Yahid, they say, is absolute oneness numerically. Okay. Don't use that word. Deuteronomy 33. Deuteronomy 33, 4 through 5. Okay, you there? Moses commanded us the law, even the inheritance of the congregation of Jacob. And he was king in Jeshuan. When the heads of the people and the tribes of Israel were gathered together. Guess what that word together is translated from? Yahid. Which they say refers to numerical oneness. But we have a unity of people gathered here. More than one person gathered Not really. I'm not giving you this information. We can go steer them and kill them. People, we want to, we want to be able to share the truth with this thing. Right? Okay. Give me, give you some scriptures on the oneness of God, Old Testament. Deuteronomy 6 4, I gave that to you. Psalm 86 10, he's God alone. Deuteronomy 4 35 through 39. Let's go to Isaiah 44, 6. Let's go another reference, Old Testament reference. I don't want to keep you all day, so I won't read everything I have written down, all the references. Isaiah 44, 
Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel, and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first, and I am the last, and beside me there is no God. Beside me. Now look at this. Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel, and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I, say I, am the first, and I am the last, and beside me there is no God. I and I and me, when he talks about himself, is a numerical oneness. It's not just unity oneness. It's numerical oneness. Amen. Now there are times when he makes the person self, let us, let man. In our image, he uses the full term, let us make man in our image. But then in Genesis 1, it says, God made man in his own image. Let us make man in our and our image. Not talking about just two separate persons in the Godhead. It says he made man in his own image. Correct? Sometimes he will honest with you. So we have numerical oneness with God, but we also have references that speak of unity, purpose, and will. Yes. That he uses of himself. So these are accurate here, and I'm speaking. Okay, y'all with me still? These passages here speak of a tithe, the oneness of God, uh, can be used to show the unity, but also I want to emphasize to you that there can be used for a numerical oneness as well. Now, in the New Testament, then what does the Bible say in the New Testament about the oneness of God? Does it teach monotheism? Does it teach one God like the Old Testament? Mark 12, 29, New Testament theology. see where I am, church, this morning? If I could just stay with the Bible and teach you the Bible, I'd have a problem. But when I start trying to tell you what doctrines, what other doctrines they teach you about, I mean, it, it just, read them. They don't make sense. They don't, they don't line up with the Bible. Okay, Mark 12, uh, 29, you there? Jesus answered him, the first of all the commandments is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. Well, there's the verse. Okay, it's in Matthew, it's in Mark as well, Luke as well. Jesus was a strict monotheistic believer because he quoted the Old Testament referring to the oneness of God. And he says, Hear, o, he said, the greatest commandment of all is this, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. He's speaking as a man, but he's also God. So Jesus was a strict monotheistic believer. He wasn't a Trinitarian. He believed in the oneness of God himself. That's the verse right there. I have what I've been looking for. And two of two of the people in the church found it. Maybe some of you other ones found it, but you didn't show me. But two of the people in the church found it, and they weren't preaching. Right? God bless you. Hallelujah. I was driving the preaching, but having the, the first day I asked the question, where did it teach that Jesus was a strict monotheistic believer? I forget the preacher. The first one, who right here, Pastor? But no, I still haven't heard from a preacher yet. 
saints in the church and said, this is it. Give me the pastor to raise up. Well, sometimes with the preachers in the house, they just, you know, we start thinking about big theological dissertations. Simple, you know. Jesus said it. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. New Testament. Correct? Now, Mark 12, 29. Say one. Obviously, when now, he's citing Deuteronomy 6, 4, where one is echad, correct? Hebrew, echad. But when it's in the New Testament, the New Testament wasn't written in Hebrew, it was written in Greek. So the Greek word here, one, is pronounced heis. H-E-I-S. Okay? Another Greek word for one is monos. Monotheism. One God. Heis. One. Now here, let's try to trip you up again. And we'll say, haste speaks of the absolute oneness of God, so monos is speaking of the unity, or maybe it's vice versa. But I found again that this word haste, one, is also used in reference in John 17, 21, to a group of people called you, the church, that they may be one as ye are one, haste. But there's a unity with more than one person there, so it's unity. So sometimes they'll try to trip you up with these words and say this one means absolute numerical oneness, but you know, but this one doesn't, and so on and so forth. Don't be tripped up with that. One God. He's one God numerically. He's also one God in unity. For it's not person, but mind will and person. Okay? Let's look at 1 Corinthians 8 4. Doing real well. Real well. There, New Testament theology. What does the Bible say? How many? How many is there? New Testament says there's the Trinity. The Bible says the Trinity. New Testament, Old Testament, New Testament says the Trinity. Nowhere does it say that. Says it's one God. Old Testament, one God. New Testament says one God. First Corinthians 8 4. As concerned, therefore, the eating of those things that are offered in sacrifice unto idols, we know that an idol is nothing in the world, and that there is none other God but one. Paul said, We know there's none other God but one. He's the one that talks about the God in Acts 17 29, Colossians 2 9. Romans 1 20. We ought to know who he saw on the road to Damascus. It was the Lord. It was God in flesh. Because we know there's but one God. That's numerical oneness, not just unity. We praise the Lord. And by the way, that is the Greek word haste, H E I S. James 2 19. You know more than Paul? No more than God. And I know you know it. Well, come up here and preach it again until next time I get to sit down and listen to you. I'm, you know, so praise the Lord. I'm trying to remind you that I'm trying to teach the new ones because they need to know the truth. James 2 19, you there? 
All right, ready? Thou believest that there is one God. Pace in the Greek. Thou doest well. The devils also believe and tremble. If you believe in more than one God, the devil don't even believe that. James says, if you believe in one God, you do well. The devil believes and tremble. The devil even knows there's only one God. Can you imagine what would happen to him in the book of Job if he would have walked up there and there was three of them sitting in the essence of God and, you know, who I talked to? He probably went crazy. He, he's not, the devil himself is not a Trinitarian. Praise God, he's a one God. He, you know, he doesn't believe in the salvation like we do, but he knows that there's one God. The devil knows that. You know something more than God? You know something more than Moses? You know something more than Paul? You know something more than the devil as far as the nature of God? If you believe in one God, you do well. The devil believes and trembles. He didn't tremble at the doctrine of the Trinity. He trembles at the doctrine of the oneness of God. You know? St. Jared's got a devil this morning. In the name of the Trinity, right now, Father, Son, Holy Ghost, Trinity, doctrine, come out! In the name of Jesus, the only God, come out. I guarantee you the devil will come out. He's going to laugh at you and start talking about Trinitarians. So he said the Persians are in the Godhead. He believes in one God. There's something. Would you believe this, what I'm about to say? You're probably going to want to walk out that front door and I get through saying that there's something that, that I and the devil agree on. There's one thing that I agree with the devil on, and that that there's one God. Don't walk out of this church, go down the street and tell everybody, that pastor there believes, you know, what the devil believes. No, 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 I, I said I agree with one thing, with one thing the devil believes in, and that's the oneness of God. By the way, that's the Greek word haste, H E I S. Jude, verse 4. There are certain men crept in unawares who were before of old ordained to this condemnation, ungodly men, turning the grace of our God into lasciviousness and denying the only Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ. That's telling you that Jesus Christ is the only Lord God. It's not separating him into two persons here when it says the only Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ. And it's not a separating word. It's connecting. It's telling you he's the, he's the same one that's being talked about. And it says here, for there's, uh, it says, turn the grace of our God in less serious and denying the only Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ. He's saying the Lord Jesus Christ is the only Lord God. The word's not separating. It's talking about the same one. He's the only Lord God. 1 Timothy 1.17 I'm not mad at you I'm not mad at you. 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 
conversation. About the oneness of God and God's being. I'm not so sure he still he does the revelation of the oneness of God or not. He knew all kinds of things on the cross and everything else. Boy, he could judge me and really good talk. I'm not mad at anybody. First Peter one seventeen, are you there? That first thing. about God. He's king eternal. He's immortal. He's invisible. And he's the only wise God. Only wise. First uh, Timothy 3.16. Just read over a little bit further. First Timothy 3.16. Without controversy, great is the mystery of the Holy Trinity. Oh, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'd, I'd, have, to read into, I'd have to read that into the Bible. And without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifest in the flesh, justified in the spirit, seen of angels, preached unto the Gentiles, believed on in the world, and received up in the glory. Who's it talking about? Jesus. God manifest in the flesh. God manifest in the flesh. That's not a mystery. I mean, you can't ask for it. I'm saying, I don't grab faith and think totally about it. You know how God became a man, walked in the But I, I, it's not a mystery to me as to the nature of God. It's one God. And that God is manifesting the flesh. All right, say praise the Lord. But to interpret, going back to the Old Testament and the New Testament, where they want to say that these words define, you know, the absolute numerical oneness versus unity, and, and if it was absolute oneness, it should have been used a certain way. It should have been used. I've already clarified that to you, but that's not always the case, correct? But let me just read this to you. To interpret the pot, one, we are in the New Testament test and monos. We need to look to the scripture by Golden Isaiah as to reference to God. I mean. Deuteronomy 6 4. 6 4 can speak of unity or numerical. If unity, then it is unity of attributes, not person. Multiple attributes. If Echad, now listen carefully, does not mean one in number, then we have no defense against polytheism. Because three or more separate gods could be one in unity of mind and purpose. So the point is, when the Bible talks about God as one, it's speaking of absolute numerical oneness. When it speaks of Him uh, one in unity, it's talking about one in mind and will and purpose. Not three separate persons. Does that make sense? 
what I'm trying to convey to you is that the word one is just speaking about unity. What he just said is correct. We have no distinction with polytheism and belief in many gods because three gods, three separate gods, can get together and still be one. Now, if you're the Genesis 9, so I'm an absolute monotheistic believer. I believe in a numerical oneness of God as well as a unity in the oneness of God. Unity of purpose and will. But absolute numerical oneness as to the essence of being. And that God, one God, is manifest in the flesh. That is, he is of another nature, not of another deity. Okay? Genesis 1924. Want to explain this passage? Y'all having fun out there? Y'all ready to go home? This is Matthew chapter 24, verse 22. Let's talk about this. Okay, let's do this. The sun was risen upon the earth, and Lot entered into Zoar. Then the Lord rained upon Sodom and upon Gomorrah brimstone and fire from the Lord out of heaven. And they will seek to interpret that passage that you have one Lord standing on the earth speaking to another Lord who's in heaven. And that this one Lord standing on the earth requesting to the one Lord, to the Lord in heaven to rain down fire on heaven. That's the way they interpret that. You've got two separate Lords in the picture. One's on earth walking with the two angels asking the one Lord in heaven to call down fire and brimstone upon fire. Oh, you, you got to be joking. Then you got two gods then. Amen. Now, by the way, the Lord, God Himself, you know, manifests Himself as a theophany with those two angels. The Bible doesn't say He even went with the angels to Sodom and Gomorrah. That the two angels went, but the Bible doesn't say the Lord went with those angels to Sodom and Gomorrah. Okay. It is not one Lord on earth asking another Lord in heaven to rain down fire and brimstone. It is an example of restatement as a means of emphasis. The NIV translates it this way. The Lord rained down burning sulfur on Sodom from the Lord out of heaven. One Lord as one being in one place doing one thing in heaven. What about two witnesses? John 8, 16. All right. John 8, 16. And yet if I judge, my judgment is true, for I am not alone, but I am the Father that sent me. It is written in your law that the testimony of two men is true. I am one, that bear witness of myself, and the Father that sent me bears witness of me. Some people say, well, there you are, two witnesses, two separate persons. 
Then said they unto him, Where is thy father? Jesus answered, You neither know me nor my father. If you had known me, you should have known my father also. He goes there and clarifies that they're not, he's not talking about two separate witnesses here as far as two separate persons. It's talking about a witness that comes out of his human consciousness and a witness that comes out of the consciousness of God. It's not two separate persons. Okay? It's not two gods. He goes on and says, if you had known me, if you had known the Father. We have the self-conscious humanity of the Son, and we have the self-conscious deity of the Lord. Genesis 1-1, I'm almost done. I'm almost done trying to be patient here. All right? Genesis 1-1, let's talk about the word God. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The word, in the beginning, God, in the beginning, Elohim. Elohim is a plural word. Okay, so we're going to put Trinitarian glasses on, right? And we're going to read the word Elohim as meaning three persons. Take the glasses off. Read the word Elohim. It has absolutely nothing to do with three persons. It's a plural word which speaks of plurality of attributes. Even there are some Trinitarians that, that, that will tell you that the word Elohim has nothing to do with the doctrine of the Trinity. Even they're honest enough to say that. It has to do with the plurality of attributes. Okay? It's not telling you the three separate persons because every time the word Elohim is used in reference to the one God of the Bible, it is always surrounded by singular verbs which teaches you that it's talking about one numerical God who has many attributes. Singular verbs. When it talks about the false gods, Elohim is also a word that is used for false god, little g-o-d. But it's always, a, it's always with plural verbs around that reference. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Um, verse 26, he sent Jesus, and God said, Let us make man in our image, us, right? Make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish fish of the sea, over the fowl of the air, over the cattle, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creepeth upon the earth. So God created man in his own image. But in Genesis 1 it says, God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. Well, he didn't realize something. He didn't just create a man. He created a woman. And so in the being of God, his spirit, all right, he created man and woman. You understand what I'm saying? Both man and woman are created in the image of God. To let us make man in our image is a reference to God as being in his spirit. Hallelujah. We can't just uh, limit him, you understand, to a masculine. It can't be all right. Well, the woman was taken out of the side of a man. Right? So in Adam, woman resided. In God, woman resided. 
in God man resides. And so let us make man in our image. And we're talking about the master of the gospel. We must acknowledge We have one God. Alright? So God created man in his own image. Get it? If that's not good enough, turn to Ephesians chapter 1, I believe sometimes the Bible says, He does everything after the counsel of his own will. So it's not talking about one person talking to another person says, Hey, let us make man like us. He does everything after the counsel of his own will. After the counsel of his own will. He counsels his own will before he does something. But you can't find the Trinity here, three separate persons in the Godhead, in that passage. The Bible says he created man in his own image. I don't think any of you men are walking around at some time. Those are locked, arms locked. Who are you? We're Jews. You cannot prove the doctrine of the Trinity with that. Okay, say praise the Lord. So I just pointed a couple of just a couple of examples where the Trinity is read into the Bible. It's just several verses right there. Okay, let's go to First John five. Those guys almost done. This morning, God help me. God give me glory. First John five seven. For there are three that bear record in heaven: the Father, the Word, and the Holy Ghost. And these three are one. There are three that bear record in heaven. The Father, it doesn't say the Father, the Son, the Holy Ghost. It says the Father, the Word, because the Word is real. Father, the Word, and the Holy Ghost. That's real. The Bible says in John 1 and 1, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. John 1 14, and the Word became flesh. So the Word is a reference to the deity. Let's say the three that bear record in heaven, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. The three are one says the Father, the Word, and the Holy Ghost. And these three are one. Right? Now, Brother Matthew 28, 19. Now, look, if you have the Holy Ghost, you've got the Spirit of God inside of you, and you can access all those divine attributes of God. How? How do you get power? How do you get the attributes of God, the rays of God, if you will? By prayer and by worship. That's how else are you going to talk to God? The only way that you and I can communicate with God is by prayer and by worship. He can communicate with me in dreams and in visions. But the only way that you can, you and I can communicate with God is by prayer and worship. And when you do that, you access, if you have the Holy Ghost, the 
divine attributes of God into your life. And you release that power. Whatever you need in your life by prayer and by worship. Amen? So we have His Spirit in us, but we're not God. We access those attributes by prayer and worship. And then we have taken His name. Let's go to Matthew 28. Now, if you don't believe in the oneness of God, which is as God manifest in the flesh, you believe that this is the second person in the Godhead, and the Holy Ghost is the third person in the Godhead, then you're going to baptize in the Trinity's Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Okay? Matthew 28, 19. Go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name, singular, name, singular, not name, but name, singular, of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever commanded you, Lo, I am with you all the way, even unto the end of the world. Right? So did, that, did Jesus tell us to go baptize in the title? Well, if we are a Trinitarian, and I don't speak that, you know what I'm saying, so reverently, I speak in respect to the person, then you're going to baptize in titles because you believe you have three separate persons in the Godhead. But if you understand what Jesus says, go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Ghost, you'll find out what the name is. And you will understand that Jesus is the Father, Son, and Holy Ghost because all the fullness of the Godhead dwells in Him bodily. So He is the Father, of the Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. So all I got to do is find out what His name is and then get baptized. Acts 2.38. Then what did the apostles do then? They baptized in the title, Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. No, they baptized in the name. Okay, Acts 2.38. You there? Then Peter said unto them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the remission of sins you shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. For the promise is unto you and your children, and to all that are far through, as many as the Lord our God shall call. So when you understand that Jesus is God in the flesh, when you understand He is the Father, Son, and Holy Ghost, you will baptize in the name of Jesus. Because you know His name. You're not going to baptize in just such a title. But we are the people of the name. We are one God believers. We are strict monotheistic believers in contrast to polytheism, which means believes in many gods. And we believe that this God is not just one in unity, but he is numerical, absolutely one in number. And we baptize in his name because we know that all the force of the Godhead dwells in Jesus Christ. Amen. We have his spirit. Receive the Holy Ghost, baptized in the water in the name of the Lord, we're filled with the Spirit of God, and we access the divine attributes of God Himself by prayer and praise. Whatever you need from God, just start praying and worshiping. And where is your where is your resource? He's the source in you. And He will release the resource of His attributes in your life. Whatever you need from God. Amen. For the Godhead dwells bodily in him, Colossians 1.19, also not just Colossians 2.9, but Colossians 1.19. Jesus 
Concerning the Godhead, Arianism. Arianism. This is where they had the Council of Nicaea in 325 AD. This was the doctrine that they were trying to refute with a false doctrine of the Godhead. Arianism, one eternal person who in the beginning created in his image a super angelic being called the only begotten Son, by whom he made the world, and then the Son created the Holy Ghost. So that thought, that that's you know it created that God created the Son and He's a super angelic being. That's where Mormon uh, Jehovah Witnesses get their doctrine. Okay, and then the Son created the Holy Ghost. Can you imagine? Arianism, doctrine of the Trinity, and I say heresies concerning the Godhead. I put this down. It is a heresy. Three separate persons in the Godhead, co-equal, co-eternal, co-existent. Amen. Or there's one, or that there's one God and three separate persons, or three persons in one substance. These persons are called God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Ghost. That is heresy. That's false doctrine. Now, do the word heresy. Now, we're not talking about you use that word heresy to make you think. You know, we're going to get, we'll get them to burn them at the stake. But it is. It's false. It's false. Not too Christian. All right. So you got it. Arianism, Trinitarianism, Tritheism. Now, Tritheism teaches there's three separate. So that in that, here you go. You ready? Trinitarian theology says Tritheism means this. That a person believes that that one essence of God can be divided and because that one essence of God can be divided into three essences, we have three gods. But the Trinity will say, the Trinity will say, we don't believe you can divide his essence into three essences. And that's what a tritheistic believer believes, that the essence of God, God himself, can be divided. You can't divide God, but that's what they believe. If you can divide God, then you've got three gods, or tritheistic. The Athanasian Creed in 580 AD declared the Godhead is Trinity. Belief, now here's what the Athanasian Creed says. Belief in the Catholic faith in the Trinity is, indispens is an indispensable condition of salvation. Those who reject will be lost forever. So they connect the Trinitarian doctor, doctrine with Catholicism. 
you don't believe in that, that Catholic doctrine of the Trinity, they say you will be lost forever. That's in the Athanasian Creed. Okay? And that creed declares, or they say, that the Godhead is the Trinity. Well, I'm not a Catholic. And I don't hold to the Catholic faith of the doctrine of the Trinity. I'm a one God apostolic, Jesus name, baptized, Holy Ghost filled believer. Athanasia can't put me in, in, in hell. Catholic Church can't put me in hell. But that's the faith of the Catholic Church. You know what the Catholic Church, and I, and I have a, at home, I have an article in the encyclopedia that says the Catholic Church says to the Protestants, that you are a separated rebel if you believe in the doctrine of the Trinity. The Catholic Church, you can call yourself Protestant, you can call yourself Baptist, you can call yourself all these various names, but if you believe in the doctrine of the Trinity, the Catholic says, the Catholic Church says you're nothing but a separated rebel. So what's going to happen if these people who believe in the Catholic doctrine of the Trinity, it is a Catholic doctrine, again, they're going to go back to the mind called the fourth church of the book of Revelation 17 called the mother of heavens. And they'll unify the one world religion. Not one got believers. That's why I taught you the book of Revelation because the book of Revelation was declaring to you the oneness of God in contrast to offering uh, incense to false gods. Amen, you with me? Okay. That's the Athanasian Creed. Aren't you glad to know that all of us are going to hell? My mom's a Baptist, my mom's a Methodist, my mom's a this, my mom's a that. She believes in the doctrine of the Trinity, but she's a separated brother of the Catholic Church, and she won't accept that. But the Bible, I mean, this this decree declares that that is a Catholic doctrine. I want to be married. Nicene Creed in 325 AD establishes the eternal pre-existent Godhead of Christ because they use the term begotten before all worlds. He is begotten before all worlds. Nicene Creed is a false doctrine. He was not begotten before all worlds. He was not pre-existent as the Son. He was pre-existent as God. He came in the time That's why I tell you, you know, for you to believe in the doctrine of the Trinity, you've got to put those creedal glasses on. Read the Athanasian Creed. Read the Scripture through those. The Athanasian Creed. Read the Scripture through the Nicene Creed. It's not there. See, the doctrines of men are the doctrine of the Bible. Indeed. In closing, real fast, I'm going to go through the names of God because it's important to understand that the Godhead is represented in the names of all the fullness of the Godhead dwells in him bodily. He is not only the resource, the attribute of the divine, but he's also the source. He's God in body. And the attributes of God uh, is what makes God God. His name. Uh, you ready? Real fast. These are known as the Eloistic, Eloistic names of God. They have to do with his uh, being creator and creation. Okay? 
Now, we already covered Elohim. Let me begin in God for the end here. The word Elohim is translated into the English God. Elohim is the plural form of a, another name for God, El. E-L. El. El means that he is a God of power and might. It's connected to his creation. Elohim is the plural form of El, which speaks of his attributes, not plurality of person. El Elyon. Uh, I gave you Elohim in Genesis 1 1. El Elyon, the Most High God, Genesis 14 18. El Roi, Genesis 16 13 through 14. The God that sees is omniscient. El Shaddai. Really, the word Shaddai means the breasted one. Doesn't mean he has breasts, it means that he nourishes or provides for his people. El Shaddai. That's that feminine attribute, if you will, of God, nourishing his children. El Shaddai. Translated God Almighty, Genesis 17:1, or the all sufficient one. El 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 Alone. El Alone. El Alone. God everlasting, which is the eternity of being. Genesis. Last year, I think that's Genesis 27 33. Are you checking on that? I'm not going to take it down. But anyway, uh, God everlasting. Look at Genesis, let's see there. 23, 33, 27, 33, 29, 33. El Bethel, Genesis 31, 13. El Bethel, God of the house of God. Genesis 33 and 20. El Elohim, Israel. God, the God of the prince of God. Eloah, the one God. Deuteronomy 32, 15. Daniel 2, 11. El Gibor. The mighty or great God. Isaiah 9 and 6, Jeremiah 32, 18 through 19. Elohim, Elion, God the Most High. Psalm 91, 1 through 2. Elohim, Sabio. Psalm 80, verse 7. God of hosts. Speaks of his omnipotence. Adon or Adonai or Adonai means master. Owner or ruler of all. Psalm 147 5. Emmanuel, God with us. Isaiah 7 14, literally with us, God. Isaiah 7 14, Matthew 1 21 through 23. The Bible says that this is Emmanuel, which is with us, God. Okay? We'll turn Isaiah 7 14. The redemptive names of God. Now, in some translations of the Bible, it's translated Jehovah. Jehovah. That's a false pronunciation of the name of God. Jehovah. They took vowel points of one of the names of God, I believe it's Adonai, and they put it in the back into the name of Yahweh and came up with uh, Jehovah. It is an incorrect pronunciation. Now, when I say they, I'm talking about, I believe it's a Nazarite. Nazarite text is the one that did that. Okay? They came up with this word. 
Jehovah. But really, it's Yahweh, Yotavavhe, and you'll see it in your Bible, it's all capitals, Lord, Amen. Correct? So, the redemptive name of God, Yahweh, Yotavavhe, the redemptive name of God, God involved in redeeming man, is why he's called Yahweh, Yotavavhe, or Lord. And that means I am that I am. Exodus 3, 14 through 15. Correct? So in Exodus chapter 3, when he reveals himself to Moses in the burning bush, he says, I am that I am. He's Yahweh. He's Yahweh. He is the self-existent, eternal God that is coming to redeem Israel out of Egypt. It's redeeming this redemptive purpose to Moses to redeem Israel out of Egypt. So we're talking about I am that I am. It's God in redemptive history. Okay. We have Yahweh Elohim, Genesis 2, 4. The Lord God. Okay, we see him as redeemer and creator. Then we have Yah, the abbreviated form of Yahweh, Yodhavah, Exodus 16, 2. Elohim Sabiot, Lord God of hosts, Psalm 84 8, Adonai. Yodhe Sabiot, Master, Lord of hosts, Psalm 69 6. Elohim, Lord God, Psalm 68, 18. We have Yah, 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 Lord provides. Uh, Yahweh Rahpe. He's the Lord our healer. Exodus 15, 26. Yahweh Nisi, the Lord our banner. Exodus 17, 15. Yahweh uh, Tana, uh, the Lord is jealous. Exodus 20, verse 5. The Lord of Yotevape in Kadeshim. Now you could say it in Kadesh at times. It's abbreviated in Kadeshim. He's the sanctified. He's the Lord that sanctified. It's Exodus 31, 13, Leviticus 28. Is um, the Lord our shalom, the Lord our peace, Judges 6, 24. The Lord, the faith, Judge, Judges 11, 27. The Lord of Sabiot, Lord of hosts, 1 Samuel 1, 3, Psalm 24, 10, 84, 1 through 3. The Lord Elyon, the Lord Most High, Psalm 7:17. The Lord uh, Ra'e, or the Lord Rohi, He says, "The Lord our Shepherd." Psalm 23:1. The Lord Hosin Yu equals the 
Lord, I'm asking for Psalm 95, 6. Yahweh, Jehovah, the Lord is mighty. Isaiah 43, 13, the Lord sits for me. The Lord, our righteousness. Jeremiah 23, verse 6, the Lord, Shammah. The Lord is there or at the present. Ezekiel 48, 35. Okay? The reason why God has so many names here in the redemptive purpose of God is God is saying that he needs every need of man. I am that I am. He needs every need. Whatever your need is, God can meet that need. And that's why he revealed himself in so uh, one God with many names. He needs every need. Okay? Now, here we go. All of these names that I just went through are found in the one name of the Lord Jesus Christ. So when you say Lord Jesus Christ, you say every name that I just read to you. They're all in that one name, and all of these names point to that one name. You with me? Go to Acts 2. I'm coming to a close. Acts 2, 34 through 36. David has not ascended into heaven, into the heavens, but he saith to himself, The Lord said unto my Lord, Sit thou at my right hand until I make thine enemies thy footstool. Therefore let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God hath made that same Jesus, whom you have crucified, both Lord and Christ. So he is Lord Jesus Christ. So we have the name of the Godhead embodied in Jesus and that name that declares that he is the names of the Godhead are embodied in his name. Okay. Um, the Lord Jesus Christ would be translated Yohei Yahashua Christos means Lord, Savior, Anointed. So ultimately what you say that in him Every need God has met, every need has been answered. Because all the names of God in the Old Testament are in that name, Lord Jesus Christ. Colossians 1, all fullness dwells in him bodily, and all the names of God dwell in his name. The fullness of the Godhead name dwells in him. So we get baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ getting baptized in the name of the Godhead, Lord Jesus Christ. Everything you need is found in that name and his name. And this concludes my preaching on the Godhead this morning. Let's stand. Father, we thank you today for your awesome presence and power. Lord, we pray in your name, the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, we are called by your name water baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. We have your name this morning called upon us. 
by virtue of the fact, Lord, that we have your name called upon us. We have the authority to use that name. Lord, in your name we pray, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Every need, Lord, that you have is found in every nation. We thank you, Lord, that we can access your power. We can access what we need, Father. And these are attributes, Lord, we pray. These are attributes we worship. Release those into our lives, God. For your name is in your spirit. Thank you, Lord, that we're called by your name. The name is above every name. And we have your spirit today. Everything we need. Your presence. Your power in your spirit, authority in your name, Lord. Now, God, we go forth. As the people of the name people of one God, speak monotheistic believers. Let us go forth, Lord, and declare it to the world, truth that is in the scripture. In Jesus' name we pray, amen and amen. God bless you. Dismiss. We'll see you tonight. Please come early for prayer. Release God's power in your life, the attributes of God in your